This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO Wisdom Tree, coming to you again live from our studio on Warren's campus. It's been a few weeks back in the studio. It's been great to be back here with Dion and the crew. Uh, my co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussions not tied to the offers of investment products and the views our guests are their own and not those of the affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. A friend of the program, Sam Ryan, is going to be talking about the markets, the economy, a tour around the world. Uh, but before that, Professor Jobs Friday, uh, get interested to get your take, what this means for the economy, the outlook, the Fed. We know, uh, interested on, on your take on all that. Yeah, uh, Jeremy, and you know, the, when the first Friday falls on the first day of the month, we we get a double dose because the ISM surveys um, are, are are therefore on the same day. So a lot of data. Okay, that, let me summarize. Um, I thought the data was definitely strong, um, and it, it's, it's strong in a way that reinforces the fifty basis point hike. Um, uh, it isn't, uh, you know, the, 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 the actual change in payrolls was very much on target, but unemployment dropped two tenths of a pen to 3.6%. Remember the, the, basically the low of the last half century, 3.5, just before the pandemic. So we're within one tenth of that, uh, period. Also the wage increases, um, a little bit firmer than expected year over year, five, six. Uh, let me mention that there's a little bit misleading on these uh, every average hourly earnings because a lot of these are earnings of people who have been locked into contracts. What we should really have, and I do not have at my fingertips, are what are the wages of people who are active in the first-time hires? And we know those are much higher than three, 5.6% year over year. Uh, it's people who are in corporations, businesses, that are, you know, locked in three, four, five percent contracts that are pulling that number down. Um, the underemployment rate, which is the U6 rate, down to 6.9 percent. That's also three tenths below last time. So th- this shows the labor market is extremely strong. No excuse. And by the way, this is with oil prices going up. So it isn't, you know, people didn't get scared stopped hiring as a result of the uh, Russian invasion of uh, the Ukraine. Also, on the ISM front, although the number was a little bit um, weaker than expected, uh, the prices paid factor um, uh, jumped up to 87.1 from 75. It was only expected to go up to 80. That's a big miss. I mean, in other words, the inflation is still raging and at least from the ISM uh, manufacturing survey, raging at a rate that is far higher than anticipated. Now, with all that, people would say, oh, my God, is, is the stock market tanking? And the answer is no, it is really not tanking. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, despite the big increase in yields, uh, and, and that's, again, the idea is where am I going to go in an inflationary period? Um if, there, if the Fed is going to have to tighten, a recession is somewhere in 23, and we don't know how strong that recession is going to be. And uh, I think the attitude is, I, you know, I'm going to be in real assets over here. Um, uh, by the way, uh, those people who look at the two-year, 10-year, making a big deal, yes, it has inverted. The two-year is at 243. The 10-year is at 237. Now it's, you know, four or five basis points. Let me uh, – we've been saying – I've been saying for the last six to nine months that um, that the long end is, is permanently lower. We're going to get much more inversions than we have in the past. It does not necessarily signal a recession. Now, I'm not saying that eventually the Fed will you know, not have to tighten enough that it will soften the economy. 
But uh, we will expect flat and inverted curves uh, to be much more common in our future. Um, and don't get waylaid by all those people who say, oh, my God, that just guarantees a recession coming up. Does not guarantee a recession uh, coming up. I would love, you know, the curve would have to be on the 90 day and the, and the 10 year. Uh, and it would have to be far in excess of uh, one and a half, two percentage points before I would really get concerned. Uh, that's not happening yet. No, that, that seems like a far away way. Now, uh, I, got, I got a chance to have dinner with you this week, and I asked, what chance, uh, where do you see the Fed actually getting to? I mean, everybody says maybe it was becoming more consensus for 50, this first one, and then the question is, how many 50s? Uh, do you want to put a bold call out there? What's your call for yeah, the end of the well, year? I can. I mean, as I'm looking, the December 22 Fed funds is at 238 and we've mentioned that that is very likely an underestimate of the true expectation because of the hedge and uh, hedging ability in, in that contract. I would say if you actually ask the market, they would be closer maybe to 250. I think the news is going to come out worse. I think they could be three to four um, by the end of the year. Um, I mean, that's much more aggressive. I, I just don't even see how 237 by December um, which is modestly above, well, actually their, their neutral rate is 240, which is way too high. The neutral rate really is probably about 150 now, but it's still not enough above that neutral rate, in my opinion, to slow down the inflationary trends. Again, we're going to look at the money supply. We mentioned last week the money supply uh, for the month of February did slow, but that's a one-month phenomenon uh, that we saw. We're, next week we get the Fed minutes. I expect them to be rather on the hawkish side the big important number and it is the number before the next meeting will be uh the april 12th consumer price index um we have some early reads on that expected one point i think one on the overall and that's mostly oil but still relatively modest at 0.5 on the core my feeling is that both of those may surprise on the upside which seals 50 and in my opinion, um, if the money supply does not slow and, and, and inflationary pressures continue, opens up the possibility of even a 75 basis point move. Uh, unlikely because, you know, uh, you know, Powell is so cautious at shocking the market. But um, I think there will be some calls by some FOMC members if we get a bad reading on that CPI on April 12th. Very interesting. Um, one of the friends of the program has been following us and, and, and noted how you've been so spot on on these inflation calls and also on the Fed and and, and seeing how you've been a little bit more cautious than normal. And the question was was pointed, what would it take for you to get much more bullish in, in the sense of like what, what has to happen for Fed pricing and, and all the rest for you to, or is there any other things that would say you would get way more positive on, on the markets? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'm not that negative on the market, but I think it's going to struggle against the, the Fed having to go tighter. Uh, earnings are going to hold up. And, and as I, I, I pointed out, you know, recently on CNBC, I mean, we, we have a 5% earnings yield um, actually right now with the S&P at 45.13. We're at 19 and a half times next 12 month earnings. Um, you know, that's still, uh, that's not cheap from historically, but in a, in a negative real interest rate world, that's certainly not something that's bad. So for long-term holders, it's, 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 it's certainly nothing that I am scared about. What I would really want to see, I mean, if I, if we get another month of slower money growth as the Fed raises interest rates, that you have a better idea that they've got that money growth under control which is, I think, a, a necessary condition for us returning to that 2%. Obviously, if the Russian war ends, that would be a relief for everyone. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but oil prices, remember, were headed for 100 and above before. I mean, WTI right now is actually uh, below 100. Um, so it, it has not gone up. Now, again, this is another interesting thing we haven't talked about, uh, the the... the the Biden potential release of a million barrels a day from the Special Reserve um, uh, for six months. That will ease pressures. And I think it's actually a, a positive thing to do. I mean, we I think we have 750 million 
um, barrels there. So we have six months at a million is 180. Um, uh, given that we're near energy sufficient now, the, 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 the need for 750 million in that special reserve, in my opinion, is not as high as it once was. And so, um, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's ease uh, the burden uh, a bit on that. So that, I think, could be a, um, a good move. But we would need to see um, the Fed really uh, – and, and by the way, what we will also be getting, I don't know if it will be in the next week, but in the next few weeks, uh, the taper. And how fast is the taper going to be? Uh, expectations are $100 billion, um, uh, a month. Uh, some on runoff, some on outright sales, but the details are going to be really important to the market when they come out. Professor, thanks for giving commentary to start the show. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. See you next week. Um, I'm going to turn our conversation to our, our guest, Sam Rines, who's a managing director at Corbu, a research intelligence advisory platform uh, at the intersection of markets, policy, national security. Formerly, he was a chief comps at Avalon, advisor where I got to know him. Sam, welcome to Behind the Markets. Welcome back to Behind the Markets. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Um, well, tell us before we get into. I'm going to get all your views on what the professor just said. But for for people learning about Corbu, including myself, tell us a little bit about Corbu, uh, what you guys focus on, and and uh, your recent role there. Uh, certainly. So I joined uh, January 1st uh, to run the Houston office, uh, where we specialize in energy, national resources, um, and, uh, and natural resources and, and things of that nature, uh, and how to invest around uh, theme, thematic macro, uh, generally. Uh, so we advise uh, clients, uh, typically uh, institutional uh, types, and some family offices. And so, beyond uh, what you're focused on, the other things they're they're doing besides uh, from the Houston office, what else what else are they they focused on? Uh, sure. So we specialize in geopolitics uh, out of our New York office. Uh, Renee Anino uh, is the geopolitical expert. Uh, I function as the macro expert, uh, and then we uh, also have uh, an agricultural expert uh, as well. Uh, so it's it's a research firm. Uh, so we write, uh, but then we also uh, follow up uh, directly with uh, market ideas and uh, our outlook for how things unfold. Uh, not necessarily uh, just reviewing the news, uh, but also giving an outlook uh, that's actionable for market participants. That's what we're going to be excited to drill into is there's a lot going on between agriculture, Houston energy, and, uh, and all geopolitics. So this is the very timely uh, view. But you heard professor's comments. Would anything uh, you would just react to from hearing how Siegel started the show, anything you'd want to agree with, things you'd strongly disagree with, uh, maybe sort of open up with just reacting to the Siegel's uh, opening comments? Yeah, I, I agree with his outlook for a very fast Fed tightening cycle. This is going to be very, very quick, and it's going to be what I what I would call very tight, very quick, maybe too tight, too quick. Uh, I think, and I think that's an interesting point that he made. If you're if you're looking at several fifty basis point hikes plus a hundred billion in roll off of uh, the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, that's that's going to be some serious tightening in a very short window uh, for an economy that probably has, as you said, a 150 to 175 type natural rate. Uh, that's that's a pretty that's a pretty quick over tightening potential, and I think that's actually one of the reasons that the market has held up fairly well uh, because when you tighten this quickly that fast or threaten to at least, uh, you tend to also come off very quickly um, in, if you want to try to have a soft landing. I mean, Powell pointed out uh, three periods of quote-unquote soft landings that the Fed had engineered, which I think is it was pretty funny. I was giggling pretty hard when he decided that he was going to have a soft-ish landing. Uh, but, but it was pretty interesting because he didn't point out what happened after those tightening cycles. And it, the first two were very, very fast tightening cycles followed by very, very fast loosening cycles. Uh, and the final one was 1994, where they did end, they also ended up loosening, but just not uh, by as much. But they also didn't tighten by as much either. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, uh, statement by uh, Professor Siegel. Uh, that I think, and I think that's part of the reason that the market has uh, been somewhat resilient here is that if you go fast one way, you're likely to go fast the other way mm. too. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. At the Fed, they only had one person saying a three-handle with, with being Bullard, like, and he's been the most hawkish. So Siegel's been like the most hawkish of, of people from all conversations I've heard. Uh, and and so like he, it seems like so out there that he'd be at 3.5% by the end of the year when, when people were saying three eggs by the whole year coming into this year. Um, so you think it's a possibility. He may not be, uh, so he may not be so far out the curve there. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, right now, December, if you include the options pricing, you know, you have like, you, you're a 16% chance at that meeting to be at 3%. You know, that's, that's it's not I zero. Mean, it's not high, but it's not zero either. Yeah. Uh, and the chances of being at 250 are pretty much a hundred. So I, I, I think it's a, you know, that only takes 175 basis point raise or an extra 50. You know, it's not, I wouldn't say he, he's out there uh, by any stretch. I would say that it's, it's a general possibility. I wouldn't say it's a likelihood, but I would say it's a cert- certainly a, 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 a probability. What do you think about, I mean, I guess from your vantage point in Houston, um, oil has been one of the hot stories of the year. How do you think about all this move in oil, commodity prices? Uh, what's your sense yeah, so I, th- I think there's this general idea that higher prices equal higher output, and that's just wrong this time around. Um, that it is not that simple uh, to have oil prices be at 100 and everybody's going to turn on the taps instantly. Uh, and there's a there's a few reasons for that. You know, certainly, you know, oil companies would like to take advantage of higher prices, uh, but there are labor issues and supply chain issues for the energy market. Uh, it's very difficult to find incremental labor uh, to go drill a well. It you know, takes people out there. Uh, it's difficult to find pipe. Pipe is not in plentiful supply at the moment, and you need good, high-quality um, pipe to put down hole. When you're drilling in, you need concrete, and it's difficult to find concrete crews um, now. So I think the, the notion that it's going to be $100 oil in the U.S. picks up rigs and all of a sudden uh, turns on a couple million barrels is is out there. It, it's just not going to happen this uh, this time around. Uh, there was an interesting. Uh, there's a the Dallas Fed does this uh, survey of oil executives, and the survey found uh, that there was a significant number of executives that said they weren't going planning to raise output regardless of where the price actually sat, and that is not something you would have heard. Uh, back in the 1970s or 80s, right? They would have tried to pump as much as they possibly could if prices were around the, these levels. And so, um, break-evens are still in the call it 55 to 60 range on average for the U.S., uh, including uh, shale and fracking. Uh, so it's not as though uh, it's uh, not cost-effective for them to drill. Uh, it's it's that it's almost impossible for them to continually pick up rigs and really. Um, call it alleviate this market. So I think there's a, there's a lot of hyperbole around oil executives taking advantage of this and not wanting to help out and be patriotic, et cetera. But that's, that's simply not the case. Uh, if the U S government can somehow, uh, you know, print pipe, um, maybe, but that's, that's, impossible yeah you get you certainly get some on on twitter who'll say they're just they just want to do dividends and buybacks return capital shareholders they were such bad places of capital for a decade and you know that now they're just uh sort of these i don't know what you know the executives are just trying to return capital um but your your point is it's not that all at all they would actually love to print it up if they could um they just can't they can't get the supplies uh, correct and in to a degree i mean that is not a I, I would say that's non-trivial, right? We, we as investors, told them for years that they needed to be more capital disciplined. Uh, they couldn't just light cash on fire to drill, drill, drill. And now we're asking them to drill, drill, drill. And they're like, wait a minute. No, you told us you wanted dividends and buybacks and for us to be capital disciplined. What are you talking about? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a push and pull. Uh, and that, that mentality isn't going to change overnight. Uh, you guys also you mentioned uh, agriculture as a focus, and, and certainly rising prices there. A lot of the um, sort of there's now questions of fertilizer supply, which is maybe even further complicating this the situation. What what's your your outlook on agriculture? It's that's that's a tough that's a tough call because it, to a certain degree you have to make a call on when the conflict in Ukraine ends, uh, because now, you know, we're getting into 
the time of year where you would want to start thinking about and planning for crops uh, in the Ukraine. And that in Ukraine is a significant uh, provider of wheat in particular, uh, sunflower oil, et cetera, uh, as is Russia. Uh, so you, you kind of have that complication on both sides there. That That's going to, to a certain degree, drive wheat prices um, and some decision-making outside of that. The interesting part about the U.S. market is we found out earlier this week that uh, farmers were planning on planting a lot less corn and a lot more soybeans. Uh, that's partially because of the cost of fertilizer. Uh, you have to use more fertilizer for corn than you do for soybeans. Um, there may be some price incentive to pivot back towards corn, at, you know, maybe on the margin. Uh, but it's that's going to be a story uh, that I think is going to be persistent. Um, that and I mean you can run it down through uh, a lot of markets. Uh, to be honest, you can run it down through. You've had problems with uh, chickens. You've had problems with uh, hogs. So you have chicken. You have pork. That's an issue. Uh, it's very difficult to find labor uh, to process uh, cattle. Uh, so you're you're beginning to have supply chain issues and disease, which is the chicken and pork issue, uh, be, really filter into uh, prices on the shelves. It's not just um, call it uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. It's it's a problem that is going to be semi-persistent uh, at least for the next year or so. We're talking with Sam Rines, who's an economist and, and oversees policy out of the Houston office of Corbu. Uh, it, Sam, it's very interesting on, uh, you know, you focus a little bit on geopolitics. Uh, Peter Zihan is out there with this saying there's going to be a famine and scarcity and all sorts of conflicts coming from all these situations just continuing to get worse. Um, as you think about that geopolitics angle, do you have a sense? Is this going to get better? Is Zihan way too pessimistic, or do you see this real famine type thing spreading? Oh, I, I think that's a little pessimistic. Um, you still have exports uh, making it out of uh, Ukraine. Uh, you still have exports making it out of Russia. Uh, it's not as though those markets are completely shut down. Uh, India is buying oil from R Russia still, Germany, France, et cetera. So you still have. Uh, you still have markets uh, for those commodities. Those haven't dried up uh, completely by by any stretch. Uh, what where I think it gets a little more interesting uh, is when you look at who are the major food exporters and who are the major food importers. Uh, so you have uh, China, major food importer. You have Russia, which is actually a major food importer. It, you know, it exports a lot of wheat, but that's that's about it. Uh, when you look down through it. The major exporters of food include the United States, Australia, Canada, right? So you have, call it the NATO plus allies uh, that have signed on to uh, the sanctions on Russia. Um, and then you have a different, you know, the ones that generally haven't signed on to the sanctions with Russia uh, being the ones that are uh, fairly dependent on world markets for food. Uh, the U.S. is actually self-sufficient or close to self-sufficient on food and, uh, as Jeremy Siegel pointed out earlier, and energy, right? So we're a fairly, um, call it um, fairly, not entirely, but fairly uh, self-contained um, and self-producing uh, on both of those fronts. Uh, where it'll get more interesting, and I think in an actual semi-positive way, is South America. Uh, it's somewhat forgotten that South America is a significant producer of food and commodities, uh, and there will be some tailwinds there. Um, and I, I think that's somewhat appreciated. I mean, you can see it. Uh, Brazil has performed very, very well. Uh, its currency performed very, very well, uh, even uh, with the U.S. dollar uh, being fairly strong. Uh, so that's that. I think is a pretty big hint that this is a this is a push for some North Africa. You know that's not going to be great for them. They import a lot of wheat um, and prices are very high. Uh, Middle East uh, same, uh, but for a number of countries that have call it underperformed or disappointed, uh, this is this is a pretty interesting opportunity. Yeah, I think the it's interesting for a lot of value mandates in EM. You had Russia, which was viewed as value until everything went to zero, and that. But you know, Brazil was a very high weight in a lot of those, and and you see that basically offsetting the Russia exposure. So like, value has done incredibly well in EM this year. 
Um, and and uh, it's sort of interesting. As you think about the rise in energy and ag and commodities generally, last year was a boom year for commodities. This year has been a boom year. And, and, you know, commodities were like a dead place for two decades. You know, it costs ex- expensive to roll futures. Has has that changed to your view? Are you telling people that it's now gone too far? It's time to move on, or do you still think commodities are, are sort of an interesting angle in, in asset allocation? So I think it's a it's an interesting point. I think the capital expenditures into the commodity space are going to have to increase um, significantly. I think that's really the second leg of the uh, investment trade uh, is that you're going to have to have. Uh, more investment in lithium mining or copper mining. It's oil and gas, right? We're beginning to discover that you still need oil and gas. Um, you need lithium for electric cars, electrification, et cetera, copper, same. Uh, th- those, I think, are persistent stories on the CapEx front. Uh, and being able to uh, – and garnering exposure to those is, is something that I, I would say has changed uh, – in a way that has some tailwinds to it that are going to be uh, long, have some longevity. On the commodity front, I think we've entered a far more volatile world. Uh, I don't think it's just buy all commodities and sit back and you're going to have returns uh, like uh, like tech over the past decade. It's going to be highly, highly volatile, um, and it's it's going to be dependent on you know is is China doing a stimulus? Are they building? Are they pulling back? Is India building stimulus, et cetera? Has Australia put CapEx in the ground? Uh, Has Canada put CapEx in the ground? Is the U.S. uh, producing more oil, et cetera? It's going to be a much more volatile world for commodity pricing. Uh, And and in particular, uh, I think in the short term, uh, that's, that's going to be one of the stories. So I think to a certain degree, it's taking advantage of the volatility uh, to enter commodity trade. So if, you know, this SPR release that was mentioned earlier on oil meant to push down prices, uh, that's interesting. And it might, you know, it might work in the short term, but in the medium term, it's not going to do anything for oil prices. It's not going to make a dent in the need for uh, Germany to get LNG, right? The U.S. has promised to send a bunch of LNG to uh, the European Union. And the fact is that the U.S. could send all of the LNG that we can possibly produce at peak and it wouldn't cover Europe's needs. I mean, it's just that's just factual. Uh, so they, they will still be relying on Russia, even even if we sent it all. Uh, and that's including what is currently being built for LNG facilities. Uh, so I think that's a little bit of a, a mixed bag story. But again, that means that you have to put CapEx in the ground. Uh, to build more LNG terminals in the U.S. That means you have to build more pipelines, uh, et cetera. So I think there's a a pretty significant CapEx cycle coming here for commodities. That's the way that I would play it over the next five years. Yeah, energy infrastructure, it seems like there's a whole, all all sorts of this infrastructure seems like a major play for the coming years. Oh, it's going to have to be massive. And it doesn't matter if you... Uh, are just thinking about LNG or if you're thinking about the electrical grid trying to handle uh, charging more electric cars, right? You're going to have to actually have some resiliency in uh, the ability of the U.S. grid to handle that type of demand. And probably uh, that includes more uh, net gas generation, nuclear generation, solar generation, wind generation. That in and of itself is a story and the you know the Texas grid couldn't handle a little bit of cold weather last year. Uh, so the the amount of uh, capital expenditures, the amount of investment that's needed, I, I think is becoming realized. And it's not simply for electrification; it's also for uh, the general needs of you know food. Etc. We're going to be talking with Sam for the full hour here. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, so, Sam, you know, we were just talking a lot about the sort of market environment to start the year. Uh, you, you talked about in some of your notes inflation, uh, the Fed playbook. What do you think is the right playbook for this Fed for inflation? Uh, what hasn't worked? Uh, what, what do you think is the right playbook? What do I think the right playbook is for the Fed? Well. 
we I think we know generally that the Fed can't actually make groceries or gasoline, right? That that would be the easiest way to get inflation down really quickly. Um, but what it can do is it can raise rates to the point where it breaks the housing market or breaks something else, and that will help take down the demand side of the equation, and therefore you can help the supply side, and that'll that'll get inflation under control. Uh, so I think the way to think about the Fed is that the Fed has to go break something in order to, or threaten to break something, and do it credibly in order to actually uh, get inflation to break lower. And that's that's the only real option it has. Uh, and it really doesn't care that there's a midterm election coming up. That's not going to affect anything. Uh, I mean, you have lawmakers on both sides of the aisle um, blaming them instead of, I don't know, maybe fiscal policy uh, for causing the inflation uh, in the inflationary environment. Uh, so I think that's, an, that's a pretty easy way to think about it is that the Fed's going to go until it breaks something or thinks something has broken uh, before caring. Uh, and it wants to see inflation meaningfully lower from here. Uh, so I think that's the that's kind of the go forward mentality on it. Uh, what hasn't worked is anything um, betting on the Fed, really, unless you were just short the two and five year uh, U.S. Treasury notes. I mean, that was basically all that worked. Um, uh, because the Fed just decided to get more and more hawkish and do it in a very, very dramatic way. I mean, whether it was putting Bullard out there for 50 basis points as a test balloon going into the first rate hike, uh, whatever it might have been, you you almost couldn't get hawkish fast enough uh, to keep up with the Fed. And I think that's, that's part of the story. Um, but at the same time, you haven't really seen a repricing of the terminal or natural uh, rate of interest much at all, uh, right? That's That's pretty much been stable. And the way that I would think about that is kind of what the directionality of the 10 and 30 year have been the longer term growth and outlook indicator, uh, to a certain degree, the inflation risk indicator. Uh, those really haven't budged that much. The 30 year is still sitting at, you know, sub 2.5. So the, the bond market to a degree believes the Fed will tame inflation or that inflation was transitory on a two to three year basis. Uh, which I think is which I think is underappreciated. The the market, at least the bond market, isn't seeing this as uh, a long term inflationary trend. Now, one of the big um, stories has been, you know, obviously with the war in in Europe, you know, there's been and sort of that that market got hit in particular the big fears of of being. Most impacted by the rising energy prices and, and other things is what is your sense of you know the, the, there's I, last night I asked on Twitter there's been all these outflows coming from European funds and should you fade or follow the trend and uh, your response was fade fade uh, I, I yeah I to to be honest I, I think this and I I think uh, some. Other people observing it would say that you know, what you've seen is actually Europe wake up to some of the uh, call it issues that they've had uh, in the past, whether it's uh, lack of defense spending, uh, whether it's a lack of uh, resiliency in its energy markets, um, et cetera. Uh, fiscal policy is shifting, and it's shifting in a dramatic way. When even Germany is spending money um, and promising to increase its fiscal uh, side, that's that's a signal that Europe means uh, business and that likely even Southern Europe will be allowed to spend money again, uh, which which would be a little bit of a game changer. I mean, obviously, you know, having a war, you know, war, you know, the potential of World War Three on your doorstep isn't necessarily a great investment environment. Uh, but when you look at what's going on with the ECB, which is, you know, they're behind the Fed, they're always behind the Fed, um, or at least have been in the recent past. Um, but, you know, the ECB is beginning to talk about a little bit of tightening, not anywhere near as much as the U.S. or the rest of the world. So, you know, there there will be still be some monetary uh, stimulus uh, in the system and thrust even uh, fiscal stimulus coming. I think that that narrative will begin to uh, become a little more uh, prominent and likely allow the ECB at some point to actually raise rates uh, towards something that's call it meaningfully positive, potentially. No more negative? We'll be out in negative territory? 
I, I, it, I would say by this time next year, there's a decent chance that the ECB is in positive territory. And that's, that would be a much, much uh, more significant uh, move than necessarily even the U.S. going ham on its monetary policy. Uh, that story, I think, will begin to have some legs. And the fiscal story is not a short-term one. The fiscal story is a much longer-term one. Uh, and that'll be stimulative uh, to the economies uh, there. And frankly, I think that's that's something that's somewhat attractive in the developed world where you have the U.S. doing far less on the fiscal side. The U.S. going tight, tight, tight on monetary policy uh, begins to be a pretty interesting story of where the growth is on a on a developed market level. Yeah. So, I mean, their their inflation numbers came out seven and a half percent. And are they just writing it off to it's all energy? And so, like, this is like quote unquote transitory or how, how do you view their, their read on that situation? Uh, their read on that situation is that it's all energy, right? And there's not a whole lot that they can do about energy. Uh, the ECB is a little, I, I would say, is a lot less uh, likely than the Fed uh, to say, you know, we're going to tighten until something breaks, right? I mean, the European economy simply isn't that strong. Uh, they haven't fully opened up from COVID. They mostly opened up, but not fully opened up from COVID. Uh, so there's still some lingering effects there as well uh, that that they that they can blame if they want. So yeah, they're just chalking it up to energy, and that's why they're not even talking about doing anything real with monetary policy until the second half of the year. Now, as somebody who focuses on energy, you know, there's all sorts of critiques on Germany, like shutting down nuclear reactors and like when at a time when they need energy, like what is there? Do you think they just got so close to Russian gas, they can't get themselves off of it? Like what? How do you think the overall so there's fiscal spending, which they're going to do, but how do they solve their long term energy needs? Ooh, that's. That's a, that's a tough one. I would say that they're likely to be forced, at least on the margin, to uh, not shut down their nuclear um, facilities um, at, on the timeline that they had uh, laid out before. Uh, I mean, France is building more nuclear facilities right right next to Germany. So maybe there's something to be had there on an energy share, something along those lines. Um, but you're going to have to have alternative sources of uh, electricity generation, period. I mean, nearly a full stop on that statement. Uh, so nuclear energy in Germany, I would say you're going to have to get the public behind it. But with gas prices where they are right now in Europe, the public might be willing to do a few nuclear reactors as long as, you know, you put them away from population centers. Yeah, everybody wants them, but not in their backyard or they, they uh, are just so against it. Um it's interesting. So when you think about the that sentiment on Europe um, and, you, and your your point on fading the outflows, like where is there a particular matrix of what parts of Europe you think are the most interesting? Is it sort of cyclicals for this capex building? Is it uh, how do you think about the where where in Europe you want to go? Uh, I, I think of it as. Uh, you want to go with the beneficiaries of any sort of pseudo diplomacy or diplomacy on the Ukraine front. Uh, and that would likely be, uh, call it your Eastern European bloc, I think is getting more and more interesting, particularly uh, as we approach uh, elections uh, there uh, in the near term. There's some interesting dynamics that could occur there. Uh, and Southern Europe. I think Southern Europe is also really interesting here, which is, you know, they're mostly, their indices are mostly cyclical in nature, as is Europe. Um, but I think they could be very, very interesting moving forward. They haven't performed, you know, Europe, European equities have been a perpetual um, underperformer relative to U.S. equities, seemingly for the last decade, with very, very few uh, opportunities to really trade in, in, into that market. Assuming that you have uh, electricity prices and energy prices that don't stay here um, and that do retreat into the summer months, it could be a really interesting uh, cyclical upturn as you come out of COVID, uh, as you have uh, China turn on in a marginal way. Remember, China is a significant part of the European uh, blocks trading. Um, there's a number of tailwinds that could turn on here uh, that, you know, are being priced pretty, pretty heavily right now into European equity. So I, I would say it's a it's an interesting time uh, to be exploring and picking up some of the 
uh, bargains that you're seeing in Europe. But definitely, I mean, Europe is basically a cyclical play. So yes, I, w- I would say European cyclicals are uh, attractive here uh, with a with a few with a few uh, call it I would say uh, weak assumptions. In, in a lot of that U.S. versus Europe, it came down to U.S. tech versus like banks, energy, this sort of value growth paradigm. Like, so is that is that value growth paradigm something beyond Europe you find is is intriguing? Is it uh, you think growth will make a comeback, or, or how much of that that call is is just underweighting tech like they do in Europe? I, yes, I, I I would I underweight tech. Is is the general uh, feeling here, and it's not necessarily because tech won't uh, be fine. I, I I don't really have a view that that it's going to collapse or anything, uh, but I think you're going to have returns that are much more spread out uh, across sectors, uh, right? Basic materials, energy, um, those look really interesting, and you know, and manufacturing, right, um, across the board, whether it's uh, memory manufacturing, whether it's manufacturing of autos, um, some of that stuff is pretty interesting, and it's it's highly cyclical, and it's been beaten down. Uh, so I would I would say that um, taking a view of either like an equal weight type index, uh, something along those lines for the U.S., uh, it would be the similar view here. Very interesting. We're talking with Sam Rines, Managing Director at Corbu, focused on research across the macro space, uh, also agriculture, geopolitics at, at Corbu. Um, it, Sam, when, when you think about, uh, you mentioned Europe has a tie to China. It's sort of the other big uh, story of the year uh, in sort of the politics of China, of, of w- what's happening China tech, if we were talking about just U.S. tech, that has been like the worst performing segment uh, since the, the sort of February of, of, of last year sell-off. Is what, give us your macro take before we go into the markets. What, what's, the, what's the sense of the shutdowns and, and what's happening? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, there's been no tailwinds to the Chinese economy over the past you know, two years, basically. Right? They were the first to stimulate. They were sort of the first to come out. Of COVID, but they were also the first to go back in, and then never seemed to have emerged uh, from uh, the second wave and third waves uh, of COVID. Generally, the the shutdowns are painful uh, for the Chinese economy. We saw PMIs come in dismally; uh, they're sub fifty, uh, which wasn't necessarily a surprise if you were paying attention. You knew that the Chinese economy was, you know, going to take a hit from these. Uh, but that's been a big headwind uh, overall, just basically rolling shutdowns of different provinces. Uh, the second big hit was that the real estate market has not been great uh, over the past call it year or so. And that's a fairly significant portion of the Chinese economy, Chinese wealth, uh, et cetera. That's, that, was, that was a pretty big dent to the marginal growth as well. Uh, and then you had, you know, you had supply chain issues that hurt them as well, right? It, it's it's difficult to ship stuff when there's no ships to put stuff on, right? You know, when they're all sitting on the uh, off the coast of LA waiting to offload their goods, uh, that's that's problematic for China. So you get you had and not to mention that Europe hadn't opened up, that you know you had demand issues there. So you know China in general. Uh, the, on the macro front was a was a pretty it was pretty hard to get really bullish uh, about it and uh and the sentiment had certainly b- become negative there's they sort of took their own crackdown against their china tech firms which caused you know the questions on are they going to let them earn profits common prosperity they're going to try to tax you know tax them and 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 even questions about listing in the US, all sorts of questions um is is that now properly priced or how do you how the, the news headline today is now maybe they'll look at some of the the audits and and maybe they'll leave, let some of these firms stay listed in the U.S. Maybe not. What what's your sense? Uh, my my sense is that you know they, China wants a, res, a resolution to this period, right? And technology is an important part of the development of an economy, in in particular China. Uh, so uh, the audit news was important because it reduces the risk of delisting for a number of uh, Chinese companies in the U.S. Um, the, the other interesting part is that the macro picture is got so bad for China that now the general feeling is that they're going to have to do some form of stimulus, 
um, and there was some there were some interesting things uh, call it bantied about, but uh, not really uh, anything that was concrete. Right, we haven't really heard anything about that. But you're going into a pretty important meeting uh, at the end of this year for China. Uh, you're going to need to have an economy if you're uh, the Communist Party. You're going to have to have an economy that's pretty robust uh, as you enter into your plenum. That's that's problematic. Um, if you look at you know stocks that are down 50%, that's a hit to wealth. Uh, home sales that are declining rather rapidly uh, and have and look somewhat depressed. A real estate market that's not great. That, those are those are some pretty big uh, things that are going to become increasingly problematic, particularly if you uh, are pursuing a COVID zero policy around it. Uh, so I think the it's almost one of those opportunities where you're likely to have stimulus. You're likely to have uh, at least a little bit of a loosening of the COVID zero policy. Uh, and that's going to begin to uh, allow China to actually come close to its 5.5% growth target at the end of the year. That, that, to me, is an interesting scenario where you've underperformed on the macro front, underperformed on the uh, equity front, uh, and you have some pretty big catalysts potentially uh, coming down the pipeline. Uh, so that, you know, maybe there was an interesting statement uh, by one of their uh, ministers uh, about a month ago, uh, where they stated that they could uh, basically take the profits of state-owned enterprises and use those to stimulate small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, so I would say, you know, playing playing the China game uh, is an, is certainly a non-state-owned enterprise uh, type of. Uh, type of bet. Uh, but I think it is the risk reward there is skewed uh, in a way that it probably isn't skewed for many uh, global markets. There's a lot of cynical and skeptical people who say like there's no thing in China that's not state owned that they that that was the worry for these China tech companies that hey are they really not state owned are they gonna are gonna start to have outsized influence on them is that that was like the real worry. But I think it, well and as you get to well, can, will the anti-PO ever happen? You know, like that is that that was one of the things that first set it down. Um, there's n- rumors that's starting to come out, but that that is interesting. Like that 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 sentiment of what you said, taking from the state-owned companies, is like what the Chinese banks is like the symbolic of all that. Like, are they just extending loans to other things? And 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 that I think that's symbolic of that concept there. Yeah, and it, I mean it, it's one of it's a great definition of common prosperity, right? You take from the state-owned enterprises and you sweep it um, into something else. So, yes, I would say exactly. And the other, the kind of the final um, nail uh, to Chinese equities lately uh, has been the threat that there could be sanctions on China uh, because of the uh, Russia uh, yeah. connection. Uh, that that was kind of the last big overhang that that took that that took the equities down significantly pretty quickly on that fear uh, so again it's as the diplomacy pseudo diplomacy as i like to call it uh, begins to take hold uh, you begin to have a number of things that have been beaten up uh, look fairly attractive yeah, there any? I guess I guess some of all that play is that this this conflict starts to get more resolved. Uh, maybe not you know fully resolved, but more resolved. Is that in any other things on emerging markets like India seems to have been one that roped into it, whereas they get a lot of imports from Russia. They they wanted to still get their imports from Russia, uh, and, and there's some worries about tension with the U.S. on 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 that angle. Or any other countries that look interesting in emerging markets on some of this play, or just EM generally. I think uh, I think it's EM generally, but it's uh, in you know I, I do I do think that the risk reward is very skewed uh, for China here. I, I don't I, I just want to make that very clear. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of other emerging markets have performed very well um, over the past six months, uh, particularly relative to what one would expect uh, with the dollar strength uh, that's occurred. Um, there, uh, I would say the emerging markets that look interesting to me right now. Uh, would be Mexico. It looks really intriguing to me on, on kind of the theme that we're going to have a focus on more resilient uh, supply chains 
particularly in the wake of COVID and what we've seen with shortages, right? Um, that's going to be uh, not just a corporate uh, type uh, move, but that's going to be a, a government type move. Uh, the government is, you know, going to say, "Hey, wait, we had this much inflation because we couldn't get our supply supply chain in order." You know, this is this is more of a national security issue than we thought. Um, so I think that is a critical part of all of this, and Mexico benefits from it. Uh, there was an interesting uh, study. Um, oh, I think it was a year ago, give or take, when we were. Uh, first really seeing the effects of the Trump administration's tariffs on China. And the, one of the largest beneficiaries of the tariffs was Mexico. Uh, and the reason being that you know, Mexico uh, has a significant presence for the U.S. Uh, so I think that dynamic, particularly as we enter the summer and you begin to have uh, more of a confrontation potentially uh, between the Biden administration and China on the tariff front, uh, that could become a very interesting uh, that could become a very interesting market very quickly. It's It's been a great performer, but I think it can continue to be as well. So we've had a broad cross-section of, of topics here. We have sort of final minute, two-minute countdown. As you think about anything we haven't talked about, things you're focused on, we've, uh, how would you close thoughts for people positioning in this, uh, in this uncertain world? Sure. I, I would probably leave it with, you know, you might see oil prices decline into, call it the 80s. I think that's that's probably an interesting place to begin to pick up uh, some energy exposure uh, across the board, whether that's uh, U.S. or European-based, and how to, uh, and thinking about uh, adding that for the medium term, uh, if it fits. Uh, the mandate, obviously, that wouldn't fit an ESG mandate, uh, but on an ESG mandate, uh, some of the exposure uh, to uh, copper uh, looks really intriguing here, um, particularly if you get a little bit of a uh, sell-off in the near term. Well, Sam, any for people who want to find you, uh, your notes, uh, Polymacro, Corbu, how do you how do you find how do you get in touch? <clears throat> Email me at. Uh, Samuel.Rhymes at Corbu.co. Very good. It's been a, a great conversation. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets. Uh, thank you for having me, Jeremy. Dion, great to see you live in the studio on campus. Hopefully, we'll keep doing it. Patty, thanks for helping produce. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. You could listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 